Now, open up your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. So if you, John is the fourth book in the New Testament, and the New Testament happens about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. If you want to grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you or in a tablet or a smartphone or at home, go, you know, go grab a Bible, and uh, we're going to be reading that in a few moments. Uh, I don't know if you've ever used the phrase, uh, the phrase, I gave it 110%. Maybe you've used that. You know, so, yeah, I gave it 110%. Now, you're probably aware that that is impossible, right? You can't, you can't give more than 100%. Now, we know what that means, but it is mathematically impossible to give 110%. You've got 100% to give, and that is it. Now, if I did a survey of our congregation, and I said 110% of you, after we did the survey, 110% of the people said, you'd look and you'd say, that's not quite possible, Henry. That's not how math works. Um, if you talk about your heritage, uh, my heritage is my mother's Cuban, my father is American, and I don't know very much about him, so, so, uh, so we got, uh, I always say I'm half Cuban, but if I said I'm 100% Cuban and 100% not Cuban, you'd, you'd say, Henry, you, you need to go back to elementary school math because it doesn't work, it just doesn't work that way. And yet, when the Bible talks about Jesus... And when the church has spoken about Jesus throughout the last 2,000 years, we say Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. Does it make sense? Not to our brains. It doesn't make sense to our brains. But today, that's what we're going to be looking at. Because that baby in the manger, it's a mystery, but that baby in the manger, look at that baby. I mean, just try to imagine a baby in a manger, in a feeding trough. That baby was God. You know, at the same time, 100% human. This has some pretty big theological implications. I'll touch on that a little bit, but it has some practical implications that we'll focus on even more. So we're in a fourth week of a series right now uh, called Beyond the Manger. And we're looking at the Gospel of John chapter 1, at various aspects of that, his version of the Christmas story. We're doing it because we need to think beyond Christmas without missing Christmas. And so John's gospel teaches us that Christmas can really be the beginning of a great journey this winter by looking beyond the manger to the Christ of Christmas, because like we sang a little earlier, he is the light, the bleak midwinter, right? He is the light and life giver who overcomes the darkness. Um, John gives us a very unique description of the Christmas story. There's not a manger, there's not all those other things, but listen again as we look at this. Follow along in your Bibles, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Lagos, the Word. In the Lagos, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then, look back at verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, we're going to pray for God's illumination of his word to us, and then we're going to watch a video, uh, Bible reading of a passage that will be a focus 
at the end of our sermon. Uh, this prayer of illumination is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 8, so please join me for prayer. Heavenly Father, we can't fully understand the wonders of your love, but we thank you that through Jesus you reveal more of who you are. He became poor to show us the generosity of your grace. He took on flesh to give us the peace of your presence. By your Holy Spirit, lead us into a deeper knowledge of you as we look to your word, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's scripture is from Philippians 2, 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. All right, so to look at uh, at this light who Christ is, we're looking at different attributes of Christ that are shared uh, by John and taught by John in John chapter 1. And we've looked at three, one each week. We've looked at three so far. We've looked at Christ as the Word. We've looked at Christ as being preexistent. And we looked at Christ as God incarnate, meaning God in the flesh. And today we're looking at this Christ is 100% God and he is 100% human. Now, one of the interesting things is there are three branches to Christianity. Uh, Roman Catholic, uh, Orthodox, and Protestant. Those are the three big branches of Christianity. All three have always agreed that this is true about Christ. Now, there are a lot of disagreements between those branches. And then if you look at Protestantism, there's a lot of disagreement within the churches and the denominations within Protestantism. And we can make a big thing out of that, and we can talk about how that is in many ways a bad thing, but the reality is there are things that hold us all together, all three branches that hold us together, that when you look at them, you go, it is amazing that something this big, something this difficult to understand would be something that all of us hold together and have held together for hundreds upon hundreds of years. This is one of those things. It is that Jesus is not 50% man. 50% God. He's not some other mixture. 80% God, 20% man, or any other mixture like that. He is 100% man and 100% God. It's called in theology and throughout the centuries in the church, it's called the hypostatic union. So there's a phrase that you can use in sentences this week and uh, watch what people's eyes do while you use it. Anyways, so St. Augustine, this is how he, uh, how he put it. He said, Christ added to himself, which he was not, he did not lose what he was. Christ added to himself, which he was not, that aspect, of which he was not. And he did not lose what he was. There's nothing to compare it to in our world. There's, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery uh, that comes from a realm of being that we really, can't, we really can't grasp with our minds. But there is a simple analogy that at least helps us understand a little bit of how it works. And so if you've ever been to a picnic where they did a three-legged race, you know, you tie uh, your leg to someone else and then you, you, you run and, um, and everybody else but you has a lot of fun watching you. <laughs> you know, it's no fun to do a three-legged race, uh, although you can probably, you know, don't do it if you have fragile bones, for sure. 
but in a three-legged race, imagine with me, you go to a picnic, and there just happens to be at the picnic the fastest sprinter in the world, the world record holder in the whatever uh, sprint. And so um, you get paired with him, and so your legs get tied. Is he going to be able to run to at the speed that he would be able to run when he goes for the world record when he races? He wouldn't be able to, right? Because he's tied to you. Would being tied to you mean he is no longer the fastest man, the fastest human in the world? No, it doesn't. Why wouldn't he be able to run? Only for one reason. Why wouldn't he be able to run at his fastest? Why wouldn't he be able to display his speed? For only one reason. He had voluntarily tied himself to you. Now, this doesn't explain the the like, realities of how a person in Christ can be both 100% God and 100% man, but it un- helps us understand a little bit about how it works. Because in a somewhat analogous way, when you, if you were there and you were to look at that baby in the manger, that baby was 100% human. That baby needed his diapers changed. That baby needed his mother's milk. And he will need, that baby will need to learn, and it will need to, t- to learn how to talk and learn how to read. And at the same time, the baby Jesus in that manger is 100% God. How can God possibly need a diaper change? Well, there's only one reason. Because he is voluntarily set aside and restricted the use of his divine powers and knowledge and the display of his full glory. And it's really important to understand the word restricted. Because a lot of people think Jesus emptied himself of his divineness. He didn't empty himself. He restricted his divinity and the full display of his glory. Uh, So, uh, as many of you know, if you've been part of the series, uh, I'm recommending that everyone get one of these books for their household, the emblems uh, or emblems of the infinite king. It is a systematic theology for people who are 10 and older. And it's a great introduction to all the major theological topics. We are going to be covering those major theological topics in the new year with our brand new series that starts uh, on the 1st of January. And you'll get an assignment for reading from this book uh, each week. And I think you'll love it. The illustrations are incredible. And so we're going to see, once again this week, a little portion or listen to a little portion of this book as it relates to the hypostatic union, to God being, to Jesus being 100% God and 100% man. Let's watch together. The death killer is so important and so unique because he is somehow, at the same time, like you and different from you. Or to put it another way, Jesus is, at the same time, fully man and fully God. Jesus is perfectly human. The Word became flesh. He, like you, has a human body. He was born and he grew up. He felt tired like you, was thirsty and hungry like you. He felt weak like you, and he even died like you will one day. He grew in wisdom and knowledge and even has feelings like you. He marveled, he knew sorrow, he was deeply moved, and he was troubled. Jesus even cried like you, when he saw the effects of Adam's curse in his world. Now this may seem strange. How can this be true when you don't know any other people like Jesus? In a way, the question answers itself. 
It is true because there is no one else like him. To deal with sin and death, you need a man who is like you in every way, except he must be perfect. You need to know that Christ is perfectly human. He is like you in every way, yet without sin. In fact, Jesus is more human than you are. He is like Adam, but better. He is sinless and never sins. This is one of the reasons it's so hard to know the death killer. You've only known a sin-wrecked world, and you just think the world is supposed to be like this. You think that death is natural, tears are normal, and giving into temptation is just the way life goes. Like a child who's lived all her life underground would have no idea what to do with the sun, forest, or ocean. Sinners have a hard time understanding a sinless Jesus. That's why, if you really take time to read his book and hear his speech, Jesus' life and teaching are so shocking, it can even make you uncomfortable. His life and words teach us that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be and that he offers you a better path. He offers you his kingdom, the right side up world in the middle of our upside down world. But to sinners ears, the king and his kingdom sound just the opposite. So the world rejects him and his enemies seek to silence him. Many thought they could do this to Jesus. They thought they could make him go away because they thought he was only a man. And if he were, then silencing him might have been an option. But the empty tomb you stand in teaches you that the death killer is more than just a man. He is God with you. In fact, Jesus' divine other thanness colors all of his earthly life and work. Like his father, Jesus knows everything, is everywhere, finds all his life in himself, rules over creation, always existed, and is the creator of all things. He remains perfectly holy, answers his followers' prayers, performs miracles, fulfills prophecy, forgives sins, receives worship, and as you see in this empty tomb, defeats death, one of your biggest enemies. This is his testimony. The death killer is the God-man. He is the Son of God and Jesus of Nazareth. He is bigger, more perfect, and more unique than you can even imagine. And yet, like the bustling city streets right outside his tomb, the world passes by day after day, not even giving the most important person this world has ever known a second thought. All right. So that gives, you, gives us a little bit of that larger context, that Christ has voluntarily set aside and restricted the use of his divine powers and knowledge and the display of his full glory. Uh, Philippians 2 is the passage that was read. It's a passage where the Apostle Paul is looking at a congregation that there's lots of clues from Philippians. Remember, 
this is a, an epistle, a letter that has been written to a congregation by the Apostle Paul. And in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul calls out two people who are, uh, are fighting each other, are, are at, at odds with each other. He actually calls them out by name and tells them to come back together. Uh, there are other clues that there are some divisions within, not huge, but there's some divisions within that congregation. And what the Apostle Paul does is he takes the hypostatic union of Christ and he applies it to their situation where they are rubbing each other the wrong way. He says, listen, Jesus was equal to God. Jesus could have grasped that equality and held on to it. Instead, he he lets go of that. He becomes a human being. He becomes a servant. So you your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. God becomes the image of God. Think about that. God himself becomes a human. We humans are made in the image of God. So what can we take with us from this whole idea into this winter ahead? The first thing is that because Christ is 100% God and 100% uh, man, we need to choose, like he did, we need to choose humble servanthood. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about humble servanthood. He gets to the end of his life here on earth. He is in the upper room with the disciples. They're going to celebrate communion together. And the first thing that he does is he takes a towel and he gets on his hands and knees and he washes the feet of the disciples. To their dismay, to their horror, he takes the role of a servant. There he is, the one that is for them the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, and he is washing their feet. And when he's done, this is what he says. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should watch, wash one another's feet. I have set you as an example that you, can sh- that you should do as I have done for you. Now, this isn't the only thing that he did, and we don't know the exact order that he did it, but we have in Luke's gospel, we have the testimony that the disciples in that upper room are having a discussion with themselves or an argument with themselves about who is the greatest among them, among the 12 of them. And Jesus has to say this to them that very evening. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table who is the greatest? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, this wasn't a new thing that just happened in the upper room. This is something that seems to have been a discussion that the disciples probably had frequently. Because earlier in the Jesus story, recorded by uh, several of the gospel writers, uh, but I want to show you what it says in Mark. The disciples are on a journey and they're arguing with each other about who is the greatest. And then Jesus says this to them. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. You want to be first. You want to be the greatest. Here's what it looks like. Humble servanthood. You know, with our new semi-lockdown that has been instituted recently, Uh, with schools closing down, restaurants closing down, coffee shops closing down, with the colder weather that makes it a little bit more difficult to get out and to see people, especially some of the most vulnerable uh, among us, to be able to spend time with them. Uh, Families are having to spend more time again indoors with each other and are certainly in many 
ways rubbing each other the wrong way. Now, if some people in your family are rubbing you the wrong way, you can imagine how difficult it is for them to be living with you. So remember that at all times. Paul's answer when people are rubbing each other the wrong way is to follow Christ's lead. He said, follow Christ's lead. It's humble servanthood. And humble servanthood isn't just about something you do when you're having difficulty with each other. It is the way of thriving, of human flourishing. And it's going to be the way of thriving this winter. When God, who, was, uh, who made us in his image, becomes the image of God, what he does models the way to authenticity and to human flourishing. He's showing us how to really live life. All right, so because Christ became fully a man while remaining fully God, secondly, we need to lead a led life. We need to lead a led life. This is really interesting. Uh, Jesus was led. Jesus, the king, Jesus, God the Son, was led throughout his life. And the one who leads him constantly is his father, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. You see it throughout the Christmas story. You see he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. You see that he's given the title Christ, Messiah, which means Messiah, which means King, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, see, uh, you see it as he grows up and he's baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him. Right after his baptism, Mark's gospel tells us that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, drove him into the wilderness. In Luke 4.14, it tells us what happened after his temptation in the wilderness. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. The power that Jesus displays, it's not always the case. Sometimes Jesus grabs onto the power that he has in himself and uses it. But one of the things that you see, especially in the Gospel of Luke, the source of his power is mentioned over and over again, is attributed to God the Holy Spirit. Not Jesus, God the Son, just declaring things and taking the power that he has, but Jesus submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why would he do that? He is God. Well, the answer is because he voluntarily set aside and restricted the use of his divine powers and knowledge and the display of his full glory. Like the sprinter, he tied himself, in a sense, from doing what he had the power to do. He led a led, he lived a led life. One of the things that um, I've, I've never looked at the hypostatic union in as much detail. I've never preached a whole sermon on it. And having to camp myself there, you know, I know the facts, but having to think about them more has been really a great experience. And really, it has helped me understand why it is that time and time again, it speaks that Jesus went in the power of the Holy Spirit instead of just saying Jesus went in the power that he had. He is God. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever, um, whatever needs to be done. It also reminds me of something that I saw, if you've seen The Chosen, that multi-season show on Jesus. Season one is out on the life of Jesus, and there's there's a scene, uh, or many scenes in there actually, where Jesus is about to do a miracle. And you see this little thing that the, uh, 
that the writers did and the director does where he'll, he'll kind of stop and he'll kind of look up and, and then the miracle happens and then he gets a smile on his face. And it's, it's, it almost gives you the feeling like, did he not know whether it was going to happen? Is he waiting to see whether it's going to happen? Does he not know that he has the power to do it? Well, it's because he's following the Spirit. I, th- I think it's a nice touch uh, in that show because that is how he is portrayed in the Scriptures. Lead a led life. What does that look like? What does it look like for us? Because it's the same Holy Spirit that led Jesus and empowered Jesus for ministry that leads us and empowers us for ministry. Well, one of the things it means to lead a led life is we have to begin by admitting admitting, confessing to God the fact that we don't like being led by him, that we want to take the reins of leadership away from our God who created us and away from the Holy Spirit who is willing to lead us, and we want to lead. We want our agenda first. We want to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish, and we want to do them in the way that we want them, and we want the pleasures that we want, and we have to admit to him not only that we do that, but that we eventually make a mess of the things that are his. We make a mess of our lives. We make a mess of other people's lives. We make a mess of our world. So it begins by admitting. And then it continues by submitting. And we submit by getting into his word so that we know what he wants from us and what we can be and what he's called us to be and where it is that we're going and what our purpose is, all those things, getting into his word. Uh, Getting into prayer where we draw in speaking with him, we ask him to empower us to do his life, and we have conversation with him. Being part of a Christian community, which he has given us specifically to equip us and to empower us and to train us and to take us deeper into a relationship with him, all these things are the ways that we submit to the king so that he leads our lives. Now, because Christ became fully a man while remaining fully God, this is the last one, live like your everyday life matters because it does. So God the Son voluntarily restricted his power and his glory, and he was born a baby. I want you to think about it. Born a baby. He's restricted himself. Jesus did not change his own diapers. Jesus' diapers, he didn't like, was born, the first time he needed to go to the restroom, he just, you know, said, excuse me, I'm going outside, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. They had to change his diapers, they had to teach him, his parents, his parents had to parent him, they had to care for him, that's what his parents had to do for him, they had to parent They had to care for him. So everything they did in their parenting, not just of Jesus, but of the other children, what they did was sacred. Parenting is a sacred thing. It's a sacred duty. It's something we get to do that is sacred. Uh, Joseph would have to leave his home in the morning to go work on a work site or go into a workshop if he had a workshop. But wherever he would have to go, he would have to go and work all day to put a roof over the house of his family, of Jesus and the rest of the family, to put food on the table, to provide for his family. Everything that Joseph did as he went to work each day was sacred. Jesus' brothers and sisters would have a role in his life, right? Maybe the role was they were all younger than him. 
So maybe the role was to test him. You know, the 40 days of temptation, nothing compared to a younger brother or sister, right? To test him. But Jesus has, you know, they have conversations. They have around the table. They go to synagogue together. They learn the scriptures. We know that Jesus would have just like, again, because he restricted, he didn't come out like quoting scripture. He had to learn scripture. And he's speaking scripture and praying scripture throughout his life. On the cross, he is praying the Psalms. He had to learn that. So his synagogue school teacher, his rabbi, his brothers and sisters, as they quiz each other, hey, did you learn what we needed to learn? All of that, it's sacred activity. It's all sacred. Jesus grew up to be a man and waited probably, who knows, by, by their standards, 10, 15 years as an adult. He worked daily just like any one of us. Do you think, do you think Jesus, what Jesus did became sacred only when he became a preacher? <laughs> no. Every single day when he went to work, what he did was sacred. He restricted himself, and everything that he did was sacred. Your everyday life, my everyday life, all those mundane little things that we do, the challenges that we face, all of that matters to God. Not just coming to church, not just reading your Bible. Everything you do matters to God. Again, if God, who made us in his image, becomes the image of God, what he does models the way for us for what our lives should look like, what human flourishing is. Jesus lived his everyday life as unto God. In quarantine or out, in sickness or in health, in loneliness or in community, in financial hardship or prosperity, this winter, wake up each day knowing that even in the most mundane things you will do, everything you do matters to God, everything. When you see those manger scenes, you may have one at home, you may see one over in the children's area there. If you see a manger scene, you see the baby Jesus, in it, what is representing is in it is the God-man. We look beyond it by looking at Jesus' life, what he grew up to do and to be. And what he grew up to do and to be shows us what humanity looks like, what it's supposed to look like, what it looks to live 100% as made in the image of God. Father, I just thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for showing us what humanity can be and should be and will be one day. Holy Spirit, thank you for guiding Jesus and for guiding us. Help us to submit to your leadership in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.